Welcome to the Hedge for Humanity podcast, where we explore innovative ideas and the forward-thinking people behind them. In this episode, Brandon Veneta speaks with Nick Gogarty about the nature of value and how it applies to global economics. Nick has a long and impressive resume as an economist, author, founder of SolarCoin, and much more. He accurately predicted the 2008 global recession and always seems to have his pulse on the state of the global economy and what impacts it. This is a great episode, and I hope you appreciate it as much as I do. Enjoy. love to give a warm welcome to Nick here. Th- thank you very much, Brandon. Much appreciated. So um, yeah, when uh, I started going into my blockchain binge after um, Bitcoin world, I started kind of getting away from Bitcoin as I just saw just greed flowing into it as more of a speculative investment uh, mechanism. Uh, my world was opened up to uh, Ripple at the time and then also SolarCoin. I just started diving in. And then um, when you launched SolarCoin, um, you also published your book, uh, The Nature of Value, <laughs> which right. I ended up purchasing um, and reading on my wife and I's honeymoon. Um, so <laughs> I was nerding out on my honeymoon. Um, but uh, it was a good read and I, I was able to read it quite quickly but would love to kind of dive into um that the the logic that you applied um for the book and um the two sticking points that i had maybe we can dive into a little bit of that here to start off with sure sure the the book um uh and thank you for the the kind introduction there the the, uh, brandon uh the, the the book was uh very much a um uh, a thought exercise around um, really originally one question. Um, and the question was, uh, you know, how does uh, Warren Buffett outperform uh, so so long and, and for such a duration of time? And ultimately that question, um, you keep asking uh, different questions, which is why, right? Why does this work? Why, why, why? And ultimately it came down to why do some firms have um, long-term uh, sustainability and long-term uh, outsized um, profits. And to, to answer that, or profit margins, um, you really have to understand how the economic machine, almost as a, as a meta uh, um, ecology, um, works and functions. And what I found by keep asking that why question um, was that the whole process was analogous. The value creation and the value um, growth process was directly analogous to um, typical evolutionary processes in terms of adaptation, um, innovation, um, how change happens, um, and how things unfold. And so um, that was where the book took me. I didn't think that was going to um, be it, but when I started researching, and I, I probably read through probably two to 300 books um, to, to reach that um, conclusion, that ended up being the genesis of the book. Um, and part of that uh, required um, and, the creation of a concept called an inno, which is a unit of innovation, um, kind of analogous to um, uh, a gene as a unit of, of, of information innovation in the physical body. And the inno is an innovation. 
right? uh, a new way of doing something, a new price point, a new branding strategy, uh, building a factory at scale, et cetera. And, and once I had that piece in place, um, everything else kind of fell in where you could literally look at an economy and how value um, emerges um, and uh, is transferred um, and the mechanisms for value creation, um, just like um, any ecology. So that was the source of that book. Um, the work on currencies and what led to SolarCoin um, and thinking actually occurred um, after the book um, was, was published in terms of the thinking. So some of the currency research um, that we did is in different papers. Uh, the concepts, um, or let's say the framework is the same, when it's like, let's question everything from a first principles perspective to understand what's going on. So the book is called The Nature of Value you know, from Columbia University Press, uh, Ivy League School. And um, that question was, where does um, economic value come from? How does it emerge? And I literally put that same question into currency. Um, currency, uh, as understood right now by economics, really is an open question in terms of where does its value come from, right? And a lot of people say, well, if it doesn't have gold behind it, it doesn't have value. Well, you ask the question, why does gold have value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the answer to that question uh, basically led um, to SolarCoin and the thinking behind that question, because currency, um, from an economic perspective, is a interesting phenomena. It's literally, um, if you add up all the currencies in the world, uh, what economists call M0, notes and bills and coins and electronic equivalents in circulation, there's $17 trillion worth of this stuff, right, that the seven, seven and a half billion of us use to, to make our economies flow. And yet, nobody really has a good answer, at least what I could find, for how and why it works. Um, and so uh, my co-author of a paper and I, um, uh, Paul Johnson, um, who teaches at Columbia University's um, executive MBA program and has for 17 years, uh, came up with a theory of value for currency. And that theory and how currency works, um, we researched over the 50 uh, largest currencies in the world. Um, took a look at gold, uh, Bitcoin, and, and some of the all currencies. And that um, thesis and theory, which we're still, you know, working on, but we've published the first versions, um, is what led to SolarCoin. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. Uh, I can, I'll stop there and, and see if you want to go deeper into any of that stuff, Brandon. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Because, um, yeah, what this conversation is going to be pretty, pretty macro level on... Okay. Uh, economic theory and uh and and have some pieces of solar coin but when i, I what i remember uh sticking with me and um I, i'm gonna read this again um but was the difference between price and value that there's a, a difference there and that's Correct. like a huge eye-opener for me in this blockchain world because some people have the perception that Oh, the price of whatever Bitcoin is, whatever, 10 grand now or whatever, that that's right. Value. And that is completely irrelevant almost to what true value. <laughs> so, uh, cor 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 correct. And, and literally, um, you know, the, the way to think of that uh, in its easiest is to go all of economics um, ultimately isn't a physical phenomenon, it's a social one. Right, it's our collective um, beliefs and behaviors that, that create economies, and um, value is is a perception um, of experience. You know, what's a glass of water worth? Well, it's worth one thing if you're sitting next to a lake, and worth another thing if you're sitting next to a desert. 
Um, this is called in economics the uh, uh, diamond water paradox, um, where someone goes, what's the value of diamonds versus water? It's like, well, it's very different if you haven't had water for a week and you're in the desert. You might not care about the diamonds. You know, um, Resolving some of those paradoxes and thinking through those things is is crucial um, to understanding currency and, and how value works and uh, separating price and value is very important. So we, we look at three elements and, and these get kind of confused um, in, in the currency world and some of the economics world, the difference in the issues between liquidity, um, price and value. So I'll just untangle them um, right now. Liquidity is basically how much stuff or price, you know, volume you can move through, right? Oh, stock is trading a million a day, three million a day or whatever. And that's literally how quickly uh, people are forming different opinions um, about value. And um, opinions uh, of value are what we call price, right? If I have an opinion that something is worth um, a lot more uh, than the current price, I buy it. And, and that pushes the price up a little bit more um, and closer to my opinion of value. And so um, price is nothing more than the collective opinions of value. And those opinions um, can get very wrong, right? And that's why things crash. We, you know, the, the traditional economic theory basically says, um, you know, holds a couple of key assumptions that are kind of ludicrous, but they make the math simple. Um, and, and, and that's always dangerous because it's like, for the, for the sake of simplification, uh, you can get something exactly wrong. Um, those simplifications are uh, people have perfect uh, information and all actors are purely rational. Um, if you hold those assumptions to be true, then price is always identical to value because you've got perfect information about what things worth. Um, that's obviously, those aren't true assumptions. <laughs> um, but most of economics, a lot of traditional economic theory is based on those assumptions. And so, you know, you have a, a, a huge portion of, of um, macroeconomics that's based on this, this fallacy of uh, basically the market, i.e. collective price, is always right um, and is always reflecting what true value is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the dangers of that, um, you know, total, let's say, um, uh, free market thinking in, in the absolute that the market's always right, you know, is one of the things, one of the contributing factors, there were multiple, uh, that led to the 08 housing crisis. Uh, the Fed basically said, look, the market, we have no idea. We just always assume the market is right, so we never intervene, right? We can never see a bubble in advance. Some economists even say there's no such thing as a bubble. Um, and so therefore, we never, we never intervene, we never change policy, et cetera. Um, however, if you looked at some things, you, know, you could clearly see that, that valuations um, made no sense um, on traditional um, economic metrics. And so um, these... Uh, let's say philosophical thinkings uh, and theories in economics, which a lot of people say are just, you know, hey, it's just a theory, it's just a bunch of, you know, um, economic geeks, um, have very real world implications. Um, you know, when economies um, get out of whack or they destabilize, um, people's lives are impacted, you know, governments rise and fall. Um, and, you know, economic policy and your belief in how an economy should be organized and how it functions. Uh, literally is the basis for some of the largest um, conflicts we've ever had, right? The debate, the biggest debate in the 20th century uh, literally was how do we organize an economy? Should it be centrally run a la the, the Soviet Marxist concept or uh, should it be laissez-faire where no one touches anything and, and things emerge? Um, 
you know, differences in opinion around that um, were some of the key factors that, you know, led to some of the biggest um, conflicts and some of the biggest um, uh, positive outcomes in terms of uh, economic and human development um, and negative uh, outcomes for um, repression and tyranny. So uh, these are important and, and big issues. Um, so that's some of the stuff I play around with, you know, for people who don't know my background, um, I'm, uh, just brief introduction, um, trained as a social anthropologist, uh, focusing on sustainable economic development, uh, which sounds academic as my undergrad, but I did do an MBA at, at one of the top, um, schools um, at the time in quantitative approaches uh, for hedge funds. I've worked with one of the world's largest hedge funds um, in a senior uh, technology uh, slash uh, strategy type role. And, um, you know, I've also um, been a trader on a quantitative foreign exchange desk in London uh, many years ago, building quant models. And, you know, have, have guest lectured at Columbia University in their value investing program. And obviously wrote a book for them. Um, on the tech side, I've been chief analyst um, for one of the world's um, uh, most ambitious, was at the time, um, uh, research institutes, what, what they called a Deep Future uh, Science Research Institute, which one of its co-founders was uh, Nicholas Negroponte uh, from the MIT Media Lab. Um, I've won awards uh, at the UN Climate Talks um, in Morocco for designs involving blockchain and microgrids uh, for the developing world. Uh, won an MIT Solve Challenge Award um, for a blockchain uh, approach to a health problem um, globally. Uh, that was awarded at the UN. So, yeah, that's a little uh, about me. Sorry. If you wanna... Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, that was my next, um, yeah, of, of why people need to be listening. Because this, this is massively, it has huge implications, not only to our current yeah. quo, but to the generations that are coming and and if there's any parents out there listening this this, this is this is what we need to be acting yeah. upon and working towards for a brighter future because what what i've come to realize is that this technology that we're we're using as a tool um, mm -hmm. for solar coin and for mana impl implementations is just a tool um, yeah. and if it's uh, worked in like different ways it could be in a negative fashion to societies or right. it can have amazing benefits to societies as well um so, yeah. so tell us a little bit about um the commencement of solar coin the theory the logic behind it um sure. it's quite a beautiful idea when you boil sure. it down um after i did my research uh back sure. in 2014. Yeah, and, and, and I think um, one caveat, you know, I, I just gave a bunch of my credentials and things is um, ignore all those, um, it, you know, put them in a box and, and really listen to what I'm saying. And, and, and it's important for people to, to come to their own conclusions and, and do their own homework and think through stuff. And if it makes sense, great. If not, um, keep questioning and probing um, because no one has all the answers. Um, and that was one of the things I learned at, at this hedge fund I worked at, um, just to be very critical of quote unquote experts. Yeah. Yeah. One thing actually, uh, when you went down the path of, you kept asking why, and I yeah. think we have gotten away from that and almost trained not to in our educational like box that we create people into. Yeah. We're, we're, we're taught, um, facts and, uh, facts are, are, um, not very interesting and what i mean by that is um being able to logically reason and and understand and synthesize is infinitely more powerful 
um, because a few things, facts change. Um, and um, uh, unless you understand the source of the facts and the, the, the point of view, um, they're not as interesting. What I mean by this, for people who are interested, there's a great book um, about science called The Half-Life of Facts, um, which basically says one of the fascinating things about scientific um, data is that uh, it has a half-life in all the sciences. So in physics, which is the most robust of the sciences, any fact that you read um, has a half-life of 13 years, which means within 13 years, there's a 50% probability that that fact will have changed or been overturned. If it's a measurement, uh, there may be a better measurement, so maybe it, it gets um, approximated because there's a better instrument, or um, a new theory comes out um, that totally overturns that. Um, why is that important? Well, for economics, the half-life of facts is something like three years. Um, you know, and so what happens is if you have an education system that's focused on uh, one person, i.e. a professor, a teacher, or an institution, um, holding the concept of truth, well, that's dangerous in its own right. That's classic centralization. The other thing is um, those truths change, right? So if you graduated from school um, as a physicist 13 years ago, half of everything you learned has changed. Um, the half-life for medical information, I don't remember, is even less, right? So if you have a doctor who's learned X, Y, Z about how the body works or whatever, um, that stuff's out of date, a lot of it, um, and it's getting ever more so. I go into all that, um, that's disconcerting for a lot of people, and they're like, hang on, you know, I, I don't like that worldview that there's, there's no certainty. Um, but whether you're uncomfortable or not uncomfortable, it's best to acknowledge truth and then work from that base, even if that has to be a major reset um, for people. Um, given that, I'll go into the background of SolarCoin and the theory um, and the thinking behind it. Um, and, and like I said, it's a theory, a hypothesis. So the thinking is that currency um, in our research works uh, a little bit like a protocol uh, for trading value among people. So, um, you know, barter does not scale. Um, for barter to work, you have to have uh, three coincident factors uh, occur. Um, and those coincident factors are, I have a need, uh, someone else has a need for swapping something out. Um, both of our utility functions have to be different. So I'm gonna value whatever you have um, as greater than your value of it. And conversely, you're going to value whatever I have as greater than the value I place on it. So we have to have, you know, different value um, perceptions of the things we own. Then we have to find each other um, at a right time and at the right place. Um, that doesn't scale if you have, let's say, 50 goods and 50 actors. Uh, that's what's called an N-squared problem. The solution that's emerged across all cultures for that is currency. Uh, currency, um, what we think of, is, is basically just information or a placeholder um, for that value. And it allows us to uh, normalize value across things. Imagine if you had to, um, if there were an economy, we'll say it's a toy economy, with 50 different actors, uh, and they had 50 different goods. And if we didn't have the concept of currency, you'd have to keep a large table in your head of the relative values of everything to everything. You know, is one chicken worth uh, five pounds of strawberries? Okay, is that worth three pounds of blueberries? What are all the ratios? Um, where is, you know, wh where, where do things all equal out? And of course, that's nearly impossible. So what ends up happening is you end up with a lowest common denominator factor, which is currency, right? You always um, say, oh, it's worth $3, $4, $5. We use the term protocol um, to describe currency. And a protocol is nothing more than, um, 
an agreement or a perception of an agreement. Um, a fax machine is a protocol. TCPIP is a protocol. Um, a, a currency is a protocol. A, currency, a protocol is uh, a means of uh, sharing information or value between uh, parties or elements uh, that's either agreed to uh, in advance or is an emergent phenomena. Um, protocols uh, tend to, obviously they occur over networks, and they tend to kind of uh, standardize or converge uh, for reasons of efficiency. Um, one way to think about this is if you travel abroad, let's say you go down to Mexico or over to Europe, you're almost always thinking in your base protocol dollars, right? You, you'll come up with some heuristic shortcut. Oh, okay, if I see this hamburger is XYZ, uh, divide by 13, and then I'll be able to think in my base value units. Um, I'll think in my own, you know, my own individual protocol. Now, what's interesting about that is when you start thinking about um, protocols, um, first of all, there's no hard and fast rule that says um, a protocol is truth or has to be true value. So the dollar is nothing more than a collective um, social agreement. Some might say a social delusion, but a shared one and a useful one. Um, and in, in philosophical terms, uh, there are three concepts. There's the subjective, the objective, and the intersubjective. Um, the subjective is my thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, expectations. No one can disprove them, right? If I love or don't love my family or my wife or, or this or that song or whatever, there's no physical reality that says, yes, that's the law of physics, right? It's my own feelings. It's highly subjective. Um, the objective, obviously, is our, our collective body of science about what quote unquote truth is, physics, um, you know, how does gravity work, et cetera. In between there lies a real interesting thing called the intersubjective. And that's some collective agreements about either behaviors or protocols. The intersubjective, one example is language, right? If we all share a common language, we're sharing uh, the ability to share our subjective experiences. I went to the store yesterday, or I will go to the store, conditional factor. Um, and you can understand what I'm saying or kind of feeling and experiencing. And it allows us to organize ourselves as a society. Um, innovation is an interesting uh, um, uh, case in point. If someone invents something, um, we may share that um, innovation among ourselves. Um, that may be a new way of communicating, a new thing. Um, innovation is kind of a protocol in itself. And then it gets expressed as a physical thing. Okay, why is all that interesting? Well. The intersubjective things emerge, um, and they're interesting from an economic perspective in that they um, oftentimes, a protocol um, is a positive economic externality. Um, I'll first talk about the more familiar thing people are familiar with is the negative economic externality. A negative economic externality, um, sometimes referred to as the tragedy of the commons, is any uh, set of uh, um, conditions in which the more people engage in a behavior um, leads to a collective loss for the group. Uh, the tragedy of the commons might be um, pollution, right? I, I, um, or I play my radio really, really loudly in the park. Um, nobody, you know, pe people might find that noise pollution. Um, I'm enjoying myself, um, but others are not. Um, obviously, carbon dioxide, um, air pollution. Um, other things have these negative externalities where my behavior causes the collective group or others um, to, to have a negative um, experience or a negative economic outcome. Positive economic externalities are exactly the image. 
um, sometimes referred to as the miracle of the commons, where the more people who engage in a behavior, everyone benefits. Um, the intersubjective examples I just mentioned are cases of that, right? If we all share a language, or enough people share a language, uh, we can organize, organize ourselves and do things more effectively. Um, innovations, right? If we all, um, you know, the innovation behind electricity, cool. The more people who use it, share it, um, up to a point, obviously the better. Um, currencies the same way. Um, the more people who kind of converge on a currency, we can get out of the inefficiencies of barter and we can do things um, more efficiently, right? And the same with a fax protocol or a TCP IP protocol. Uh, the more the machines share the same standards, the more efficient, you know, um, it just kind of uh, makes sense. So what we did is we looked at uh, um, currency as protocols. And so a protocols occur over networks. These networks aren't hard and fast. They are um, however many people want to behave or believe or accept or hold a thing, right? Do you want a dollar or not? Um, most economics... Um, treats and looks at currency as, as a hard and fast real thing. And uh, most of the research looks at it from the country perspective. Um, what we did is we said, well, let's ignore the size of the country and say, how big is the network? So the dollar network, a uh, huge protocol, um, uh, you know, probably uh, by our estimates is, is used, accepted, recognized by easily over a billion people. Um, from, from our analysis uh, versus obviously the, the 320 million, uh, you know, Americans who, who um, you know, live within the country that defined and creates this protocol and sustains it to a degree. Um, other protocols, uh, and these protocols die all the time. What a lot of people don't know about currencies is the average currency has a life of 27 years. Right? They almost all die for the same reason, uh, which is um, over-issuance or um, hyperinflation, which causes a loss of faith in the protocol um, you know, and nobody wants to hold or accept it. Um, and then a currency is forced to um, reissue a new currency and a new protocol. Um, the reason behind that uh, death, the hyperinflation, is usually overprinting, um, overproduction uh, by a central bank um, that's usually trying to get out of a debt crisis um, and, and, you know, is, is basically buying a country's um, treasury bonds um, to try and, you know, <laughs> pay off the debt and, and do things. So, why is all that interesting? Well, the protocols aren't the size of a country. So Venezuela Boulevard, which is currently collapsing, my guess is if you go to Venezuela um, and you asked around how many people really want to hold boulevards um, if they had the choice of other protocols, it's a lot smaller than the population of the country, right? Because it's dying. Um, so people choose another protocol. They might want dollars or Swiss francs or Bitcoin or whatever they could get their hands on. So here's the interesting math we did, very basic and simple. Is you say, okay, we got this positive economic externality. Currency has no intrinsic value. It's just a protocol, right? So uh, TCPIP has no intrinsic value. So it's just a way of organizing information. Um, you know, fax protocol has no value. What does have value is how do people use it? Um, what do they do with these units? Um, and then we can look at, well, how many units are outstanding? So here's the math we did. We said, um, if a network of actors or people are trying to solve their economic problems with this value placeholder we call currency, it's fiat. Um, it has to have some value emerging in this temporarily uh, relative to the placeholder function um, relative to that work. So we did some math. We looked at the world's 50 largest currencies, all the gold produced in the world, Bitcoin and a few other alt currencies. And we found that um, the 
the ratio of the number of people in a network, so the number of people solving this economic problem of trade using a protocol, um, if you divided it by what's called the M0, or the um, amount of value um, outstanding represented by the protocol, when you translate it into dollars, um, is roughly or crudely equivalent um, for most currencies, including gold and Bitcoin. And it ranges from 500 uh, to roughly $10,000 um, per node, per participant. That's pretty interesting. So if you look at most countries in the world, the value of their currency um, in circulation is the currency, uh, not money, which is usually credit, but currency uh, itself is usually between 1% to 4% of GDP, i.e. GDP is just the amount of value flowing through um, a country or an economic network. Um, how do you manufacture that flow or how do you facilitate the flow? Well, you have currency um, and laws and other protocols. Um, and so we found that this is this emergent phenomena. You spin up a currency, and between five hundred and you know ten thousand dollars worth of value is the placeholder value of that currency. Okay, why is that cool? Well, um, Bitcoin holds the same. Uh, I've done this uh, presentation a couple times in Museum of American Finance, and it was the first place I did this publicly about two or three years ago. At the time, Bitcoin was five hundred bucks, and the title of the presentation was uh, you know Bitcoin uh, sixty dollars. Or, or you know, it, was, it was like $50 or 10000 And a $10,000 price point for Bitcoin sounded crazy at the time. And the crux of the argument was, if you can imagine a world um, where there may be you know, 60 million people willing to accept, hold, or trade Bitcoin, $10,000 is a very viable price point based on this value assumption. Um, very few people talk about um, value in the Bitcoin world um, because that model isn't out there or at least it's not familiar. So people talk about price, um, which is kind of meaningless because price is just chasing what other people think. You know, where's, you know, basically saying, what's everyone's opinion gonna be tomorrow or today? But if those opinions aren't based on a theory of value, they're just kind of opinions of other people's opinions. What Keynes, is referred to often in economics as the Keynesian uh, beauty contest. So um, what we did was we said, well, hey, if we can boot up a network uh, there's going to be all this value that'll show up as the market cap of a currency. Um, it's a positive emerging externality. Well, all the Bitcoin in existence in the world today has, has come into existence uh, basically one way, through um, computational work, right? A proof of work algorithm. Uh, a lot of energy and the embedded energy in the, the servers um, and, you know, and hardware um, went into making that Bitcoin. Well, um, it really, uh, I won't get into the details, but proof of work um, as, as currently expressed isn't, uh, A, it's not really that secure because it's actually highly centralized, and B, it's a, a terrible use of resources. Um, if you use a pretty basic economic model, um, assuming that uh, miners uh, only mine because there's a marginal utility, a profit function to it, it's pretty easy to come to a conclusion that at current Bitcoin prices, there's somewhere between probably three to six billion dollars worth of resources pursuing um, mining right now, right? And it's pretty much pointless um, from a pure economic perspective. We can debate, again, the security of the network. So we created SolarCoin. Um, SolarCoin is literally the flip side of it. Uh, the thinking was we got this positive economic externality concept called currency. Um, how can we apply that to some social good? 
um, I thought through it and said, well, there are probably three absolute social goods um, where no uh, country or group of people um, is ever going to get accused of having too much of them. Uh, my short list, um, and others may have different lists, was energy, uh, healthcare, and education. I said, well, if we want to come up with an incentive um, uh, and apply an economic incentive, a network against these three things, um, I went with energy uh, because it's easier to measure. And everyone can agree it's unitized, standardized. Um, the reason solar is because it has the largest network effects. You know, uh, wind um, being the second largest renewable, really, after to ignore hydro for the moment, um, isn't going to give you a big network, right? There may be 2,000 2, financing companies around the world uh, that are generating wind. Whereas in, anybody, um, literally anybody, even some of the poorest uh, people in the world, um, can uh, generate solar energy um, and, and participate and grow a network and be incentivized. So the idea was to mirror um, an economic um, incentive, a positive economic externality, uh, with um, another um, hopefully positive economic externality, namely renewable energy. So SolarCoin was born, um, launched in, in 2014, effectively, but really, um, uh, and was originally launched as a proof-of-work network um, because the technology just wasn't robust enough yet for proof-of-stake. We migrated to proof-of-stake as quickly as we could and felt comfortable. Um, Low-carbon footprint, so the solar coin, true to the mission, uh, solar coin energy footprint, extremely low carbon. Um, if we scaled to the same size as probably what is now equivalent for the 40 million uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, users, acceptors out there, um, our estimate is that our, our economic, let's say our carbon footprint would be about a half million dollars a year. Um, that compares to the three to five billion um, for Bitcoin. And that would work out to, you know, just a little bit over a penny and a half, just a little bit over a penny uh, per user per year. So, uh, you know, that's all good. Um, for those at home listening, the, you know, uh, Bitcoin currently, let's say it has 150 billion market cap with 50 million people. The math works out to about $3,000 per node. Right, within that range of five hundred uh, to ten thousand dollars, it got ahead of itself um, in twenty seventeen um, by our valuation metrics. Um, you know, but as the network grows, um, you know, the the amount of uh, value that can be represented by Bitcoin um, probably is is um, you know grows proportionally. The solar coin analogy is um, the following. Uh, there are about probably 25 now to 30 million um, solar. If our economic theory uh, were to hold true, and if 100% of those solar installations were to participate um, in the solar coin program, um, the market cap for solar coin, um, in theory, again, um, would be uh, massive. And it would be similar to um, the scale uh, of Bitcoin. Uh, which is quite an aggressive claim, but it's, it's in theory, that's what the economics point to. Um, that value um, would have gone to the vast and the bulk of it um, to the producers of solar energy as an economic incentive. Um, the, the macro thesis behind solar coin is let's reward and incent solar energy so that maybe more of it gets produced. And that sounds a little crazy right now. We've got an extremely low price, blah, blah, blah. But think about the people who went out and um, bought graphics processing units, GPUs, back when you could 
GPU mine um, Bitcoin. And, um, you know, they pushed up the price of, of graphics processing units um, to crazy levels, um, upsetting the gamers at the time, um, to pursue Bitcoin. Well, they did it because there was a marginal reward. Well, the same mechanics could occur, um, you know, if a Bitcoin price or a solar coin price, rather, got to um, a 10 or $30, 10 to $30 price point, which is what our economic model points to, if we were to hit some of the figures mentioned earlier, a much larger network, broader distribution, um, that uh, math makes it very interesting to put more solar panels on your roof or in a large um, industrial field. For context, uh, one solar coin is given out for one megawatt hour of energy. There are parts of the world um, where solar energy is produced for less than um, or around $20 a megawatt hour. So if solar coin were at $20, um, and the price point um, of uh, a solar coin was, you know, stable effectively um, or stable-ish enough over the duration of the solar facility plant, um, you're looking at, at free energy, which is a very wild concept, right? And a lot of people are like, well, how could I have free energy? Well, the same way that you could get a free graphics processing unit uh, back in, you know, 2014, right? If you mined Bitcoin with your GPU and you made money on it, well, you effectively got a free GPU out of the deal. Um, so that's the macro big vision picture. Um, we've been at this for five years, um, taking a lot longer than we thought, but we set it up as a 40 year mission. Um, we are trying to accelerate that mission due to some of the, um, you know, recent, um, scientific evidence around the rate and the pace of climate change. Um, but that's what we're up to. Um, long, awesome. long answer, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it, man. We could go in so many different uh, areas that my I'm just every time I chat with you, my mind just gets like more blown away <laughs> on where this is all going. <laughs> but um, like two two points that I I do want um our listeners to to understand too was um the the solar um production in these like uh, poverty communities is a real thing um we actually yeah. some rechargeable solar panels for some cell phones and i remember when i was going down this rabbit hole um and when i really was like okay i'm so bought into solar coin was when i had the thought of like you have these rechargeable solar panels for cell phones and it's like oh my gosh we could someone in africa or whatnot could um could have that and then claim their solar coin and they have value at that point in time like again that yeah. was like my utopias like this is where it could go and there's a lot of steps yeah. that need to happen to get there but that's that's really ultimately what it would take to get people on the the network in that current network um and then the other point was in my learning process through this is my wife's from venezuela and okay, got the, it. Oh, okay. Then you you know very well the, the yeah and, uh, challenges, right? Yeah, and the human impact on on the people, uh, the, the bad. Yeah, exactly. And people don't understand that evolutionary process is like what happens to us as humans. We all know we die, right? Right, and right. In currencies in history, all of them die. So when yeah. and we're very due up for the dollar. I, I don't know. I'm not saying that the dollar will die by any means, but yeah, it, there's a chance as this economic paradigm shift happens that it's not going to be the standard measure of uh, of our economy. 
uh, global economy moving forward. There's a high likelihood in my head, at least for that, uh, to unfold like that. But, um, yeah, man, this just gets so wild as you start diving into it and, and opening up your mind to what the future could be if we really embrace it. And there's going to be yeah. areas where people, the inertia, the capital inertia going against all of this. But tell yeah. us a little bit about the metrics of this solar coin adoption, because uh, sure. I went on a solar binge just this past week um, okay. or like two weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, my sure. gosh, this is happening at a very, very quick yeah. pace right now. Well, um, yeah, I'll, do a few, I'll, I'll answer um, a, a few of the issues you mentioned earlier, and then I'll talk about the core solar tech and, and then how that unfolds in, into solar coin. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the dollar, um, dollar's been an incredibly dominant currency uh, for a long time. Um, the longest-lived currency um, actually is the British pound. It's like 200 and I think 27 years old um, now. So that's, you know, that's the longest duration. And then you have others that are, you know, three, four, whatever um, years old. Um, who knows, uh, you know, how long the dollar um, lasts, but posing the question of, you know, when will it end um, sometime, you know, some, you know, between three and 3,000 years, um, who the heck knows. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not a, it's, we don't violate, as I used, like, so you don't, you're not violating any laws of physics. Um, when you say this thing could change or end, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, uh, for now, it's 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 um, functional. It's great. Uh, you know, all seventy percent of all bilateral um, trade between countries is is dollarized. So you know, a transaction between, let's say, um, is likely dollarized. It may not even be euro. Um, just to give an example, or let's say Turkey and, and Japan. Uh, maybe done in dollars. So 70, 70, 80% of all bilateral trade. Um, so a very successful protocol um, and, and a fairly stable one. Um, but, you know, again, uh, who knows? The w world changes. Um, moving to solar, what a lot of people aren't aware of about solar is, uh, and this is in my book and some of my research on innovation, um, and, and for those who know innovation, they get it. Um, there's something in, in economics called um, an experience curve. It's also called Wright's Law, W-R-I-G-H-T. And basically, Wright's Law says, every time we double the production of a thing, um, things get cheaper. Um, Moore's Law is an example of it. Um, but Wright's Law holds for almost everything. That's the weird thing about the economy. It's a constantly learning meta machine and learning how to create value cheaper. Um, so with solar, uh, solar panels now are 85% cheaper than they were in 2008. Um, and they're getting cheaper every year. So uh, panels up on your roof, uh, you know, that may have cost, let's say, $100,000 in 2007 are now $15,000. Um, that's huge, right? And it's getting cheaper. Solar energy now is cheaper. Um, SolarCoin is a member of something called IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Association, which is kind of like the United Nations of Renewable Energy. It's 160 countries. Um, their latest reports say that solar energy is now cheaper in two-thirds of the world um, than any fossil fuel, right? Get your cheapest, dirtiest coal, natural gas, you name it, um, and you're better off with solar, just purely from economics. Let's ignore the other factors. Um, and it's getting cheaper, right? It's going to be massive energy dislocation. You're looking at, at trillions of dollars of what are called stranded assets. Um, and that ever-cheapening cost function means the addressable market grows more rapidly. So things that grow exponentially, we tend to under underestimate, but solar grows, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30% a year 
terms of market share. Um, you know, that, that means you're effectively got a period doubling, um, you know, every four to six years, you're, you're doubling the installed base of energy production. Um, that's pretty amazing. Also, that cheapening factor means um, places where energy um, couldn't be had or centralized energy, i.e. a big, big generating net gas plant or coal um, that had to reach out to the grid, let's say in the emerging world, you just put your panels up in a village. The core thing, the real next big revolution in solar actually isn't solar, it's storage. It's cheap batteries. As we ship more electric vehicles, and I'm doing a lot of research on this, um, the battery costs drop, but all batteries drop, not just the ones in cars. Um, and what that means is um, it gets cheaper to just set up your own grid or go off the grid or set up a microgrid. Um, that's gonna be revolutionary uh, for the developing world uh, because all of a sudden there'll be power, light, running water, heat, um, things for, for many, the roughly, I think it's 800 million now who don't have electricity. Um, that's uh, very, very exciting. So how does that all tie the economics of SolarCoin? Um, obviously, um, you know, we want to uh, build our network of folks. Again, our, our theory is you build the network of um, users, acceptors, holders, just holding the currency, recognizing it has a value, um, and uh, the price and the value emerge uh, like other currencies. And so, again, if they, we grow the network of people, um, you know, price should take care of itself. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Does that I'm answer? Like, yeah, no, the, 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 the production and the rate at the, what it's happening is just staggering. Um, and, yeah. and people really can't put it into context, context of how fast it is happening. Um, yeah. I, I actually went down the Tesla rabbit hole of like the gigafactory in China and how fast that is coming online yeah. and everything. Yeah. But um, in the electric vehicle, uh, the geopolitical like ramifications that this has on countries yeah. that are like their their value is basically derived from the petrodollar. Um, yeah. The 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 implications are going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but again, it's just part of that evolutionary process through this. Um, so, yeah, I think w w this is definitely, um, I, I, I would love to go into more um, with you and Paul. That would be great. On, I know you said you have some, um, some research on, on Libra and all yeah. of that. Um, so maybe that would be a better context to have as a separate uh, standalone sure. where we could sure. dive into that one. Um, sure. But is there any uh, where people could point to the roadmap um, and where people can contribute to uh, SolarCoin and, and start um, participating in the network and learning more? Where could people well, find some of this? Yeah, I mean, you go to solarcoin.org and um, there's a, a link on the page there to all our resources section. So we have an overview of, of the concept. Um, uh, there's the economic research is there as well. For people who have um, solar panels on the roof, um, in, the solar coin is free. Uh, there's never any charge. So, you know, you can claim them by filling out a form. Um, and, and that's the easiest way. Uh, some things other people should know about the project is, um, you know, it's, we've never done an ICO. There's never been any fundraising. Literally, the whole process is, um, you know, giving away solar coin um, and has been for five years. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. Uh, we are partnered with the largest energy monitoring platform in the world, 
Um, we're in talks with some others. And so in theory, uh, we haven't done a good job on the conversion because the implementation wasn't good on the platform itself. But in theory, you know, 5% of the solar energy in the world um, is one mouse click away from claiming SolarCoin. And that's over 600,000 um, potential users. Uh, so far, we've picked up, I think, probably 2,000 of those users. So um, we're going to be talking with our partners to do a little more good internal marketing. Um, and we're you know, looking forward to, let's say, significant uh, scaling um, in the community. Uh, that being said, um, you know, don't go out and buy anything or sell anything based on what you hear here. Uh, do your own homework yep. and be very patient. Um, we've been very patient uh, as you know, the, the core people who set this thing up um, for five years and it may take another five years. So yeah. uh, this, isn't, this isn't a get rich um, uh, quick scheme. Uh, yeah. <laughs> think think it, long cycles, right? Yeah, and that, that's been the biggest like perception that some of the, the people on, like for Mana, for example, uh, some of them are like, I can't quit my job now. Like you get this, it's like this, this, this process doesn't happen overnight. And um, no. to start a currency has been, this has definitely been one of the hardest things I've undertaken in my uh, right. journey. Um, what does this relate for you and the different uh, paths and uh, experience you've done? For starting up well, your own alternative currency because back in the day like i was the crazy man like oh you're crazy yeah. like i don't know if i should talk to you but now it's like i when bitcoin was doing its thing like people were like hey what what about that cryptocurrency stuff like do you have well, a similar experience with all that uh, yeah a little bit i mean fewer um fewer people looking to um because i'm really you know more of a deep finance people i, I get fewer people who are like you know uh, want to speculate or, or have an opinion and and i'm so technical that most people want to go read you know read some article that starts out yeah. you know, bitcoin at, at, at a hundred thousand or something so um no the more interesting though is, is the serious people i get to talk to right and so uh because some some of the currency work and um some of the energy uh familiarity you know i've i've been an advisor to the g20 um have spoken with the unf triple c uh, the UN Undersecretary General's office, you know, quite a few interesting folks about new approaches to um, solving problems, financing problems, or new ways of understanding uh, the current economic systems. So conversations with folks from some of the world's largest central banks, um, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I guess I, I spend less time being, let's say, the crazy uncle um, at, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and more time having some interesting conversations with people like, wow, here's a new um, tool or a new way of thinking about um, the social phenomena we call currency or economics. Um, what can we do with this that is um, hopefully good? Um, or how can we understand this, what today is, you know, a $300 billion crypto phenomenon? Um, so that's, that's kind of been my experience, which is very interesting. Um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, I, I could spend all my time in the bitcointalk.org um, you know, philosophical yeah. about, you know, I'm a bigger libertarian than you are, um, you know, or the maximalists around Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, or we could talk about policy and energy and something which doesn't really get spoken about at all, but is that most money, when we talk about money in, in aggregate, is actually credit, right? So when, when economists talk about money, let's say they talk about the dollar, they talk about these things called M2 and M3 and M4. So let's say there's $2 trillion of the coins and bills in circulation. Well, referencing that protocol is is you know maybe 10 times more money um in in terms of credit so 
conversations are important. Um, we don't have any credit yet from Bitcoin or others because the protocols are too immature and the networks are unstable. Once those networks stabilize, there's obviously a known inflation rate for Bitcoin and other things. If the networks um, stabilize, the ball declines, you will see credit emerge, right? Right now, you wouldn't take a mortgage out in Bitcoin because you or the counterparty wouldn't know whether you were going to have you know, what things are going to look like in 10 or 15 years um, in terms of the value of your house or, or the payments. Um, but if that volley, uh, um, value uh, unit or that protocol stabilizes, um, you might see a yield curve emerge. That's interesting. Those are the kind of conversations I have, you know, around yeah. credit and value, yeah. right? Yeah. Versus I, I think it's going to 90 today or 90, 900,000. Those are, those, are, those are pretty much, you know, opinions and most of them don't have much thinking behind them. Oh, there's none. Like, that's what blows yeah. me away still. We're 10 years into the Bitcoin experiment, and that's all the headlines is, oh, it went to 12K. It's like, are you guys kidding me? That's still all you guys are talking about of this technology. Well, like, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it, it, it's not very helpful for a lot of people. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's fun if you're a speculator, and it's, it's cool to go you know, bet on the horses and kind of fun. That doesn't mean you learn much about horse biology or anatomy <laughs> exactly. or how, you know, how the world works, right? And, and so it's important. Don't confuse that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, don't confuse entertainment with education. Um, yep. you know, and, and the danger is when you do and then you put money behind it, right? Oh, I'm yep. going to bet on this because of whatever. So, um, you know, be, be wary out there, I guess, is the message. Yeah, no, yeah. I would love to go down different rabbit holes with you because there's one area I went down with this Tether uh, Bitfinex one that just, like, drank right. a few hours of my mind, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really manipulated here. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I would love to, uh, like, I think this is a lot of information for um, our users, the people that would listen sure. to, to digest. Um and then maybe sometime in August or whatnot, um, we could have you and Paul back on or whatnot. Um, sure. But I, I have so much respect for you, Nick, and I, I'm just so grateful for what you guys do and the knowledge that you have. If I could just capture one-tenth of the knowledge that you have, I would feel like I'm a successful, intelligent individual out in this <laughs> world. So, um, so yeah. So thank just, you, Brent. That's very humbling. Yeah, just for the user, just keep an open mind. Um, really just... Uh, look at things in a different way and and I think the biggest takeaway uh, that I, I would like for people to um, take from this one is ask why asking why yeah. gets you to a lot of root problems that uh, you're either facing personally or at work or uh, relational dynamics so um, asking why is a really critical question we got to really um, put back into our lives so Thank you yeah. so much, Nick. And is there any closing remarks you would like to have here? No, just welcome people to, um, you know, visit the site, um, question the logic, join our, our Slack community. We have some, you know, pretty, pretty, um, you know, friendly and interesting people there. And, um, you know, come to, their, come to their own conclusions. Cool. Thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the Hedge Free Humanity podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give us a positive rating.